0: This is where you uh, injected the...
1: Part of the carbon dioxide in the beginning, in 2012.
0: So, uh, so I'm in Iceland. You're in Iceland. Well, I was in Iceland. Right now I'm with you in a studio. So remember over the last few episodes we were talking about carbon capturing. Can we just take all of the CO2 that we put in the air back out again? Right? and for those of you listening if you haven't listened to that you should go back and, and listen to that first definitely yeah otherwise uh, the rest of this will make little sense yes and uh tony you were with me and gladly uh, agreed to come back yeah and i found it fascinating
2: that we on this
0: one level we
2: can do it we can technically capture the carbon but there are all sorts of economic and
0: policy issues preventing us from making it a reality yes and, uh, and even if we get those solved, where we left off was with the idea of, well, where do we put all these billions of tons of carbon dioxide that we'd be pulling out of the air? And
2: then we got to the point where we could store it underground, but because it's a gas, gas wants to keep escaping. And that's tricky in that if we do allow it to escape, we'll be back at point zero. You know, we wouldn't have made any progress. So we need to find a way
0: to keep the gas down there. Yeah. And so so that's what's brought me here to Iceland, because there are some people here that are working on a way to, if you can believe it, turn CO2 into rock.
2: And that's the person who, who was in the car with you?
0: Yeah. So that's Berger, and we'll get to him a bit later. But first, our story begins with a conversation I had with someone named Siggy.
3: My name is Sigurd Reinir Gislason. I usually go by Siggy, and I'm a research professor here at the University of Iceland.
2: I could see how you'd be intimidated by that name.
0: Yes. So I eagerly called him Siggy. And I went to talk to him at the University of Iceland on a very cold and windy day. Let me close. Let me oh, it's very uh, windy, eh? mm-hmm. Do you mind if we close the, these blinds okay. to maybe cut down on the...
3: sound? It's going to be a very dramatic, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. you're in the storm.
0: So Siggy is a founder of a project called CarbFix as in carbon fix or fixing carbon.
2: So not fixing it because it's broken, fixing it as in fixating or lock
0: in. Yes, or in this case, maybe even both. It's a name that makes a lot of sense. So so in a nutshell, what is CarbFix?
3: CarbFix is all about developing industrial solution for storing carbon as a mineral
0: in rocks. And it's a project that's been going for a while now.
3: We started to organize this in 2006,
0: so already a decade
3: yeah yeah it, it's pretty amazing we hired if i remember right about six or seven psd students in october 2007 and i've been at it since then and, and we're still continuing
0: now the first thing you need to know about this crazy sounding idea is that carbon dioxide is acidic okay that means like
2: if if it gets dissolved into water it forms acid carbonic acid i remember that from my high school science oh i'm impressed you usually yeah.
0: don't uh, you don't seem to remember much science but uh <laughs> i don't know why i'm insulting you what a targeted <laughs> but it's just funny that you know <laughs> it's just funny that you, there's all sorts of things that you don't know yeah and then you know, I know this, this very specific thing
2: yeah yes uh, we are all selective but i'm particularly selective about my ignorance
0: okay so so yeah it's true though if you dissolve co2 into water and make fizzy water, uh, like you might at home if you have a soda stream, it makes the water acidic. Uh, Specifically, as you say, the water becomes carbonic acid. And the more CO2 you dissolve into water, the more acidic it becomes. Okay, and what does the acidity of fizzy water have to do with anything? Well, it turns out that there are many types of rock on the planet that are chemically basic. And uh, since you remember some high school chemistry you might have an idea of what happens when you put an acid and a base together. Um,
2: They neutralize each other, but something else happens that uh, you're trying to get at? I was
0: looking for a very simple answer, uh, which is they react. Okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I had had no idea that that would be the right answer, but okay, cool.
0: Yes. It's the type of reaction that would have powered your baking soda and vinegar volcano that uh, some people might've made in science class. Anyways, one of these basic rocks is called basaltic rock. Basalt is what's called an igneous rock. It's created by magma that has cooled from volcanic eruptions. It's highly reactive and it's actually really common. Here's Siggy again.
3: Most of the ocean floor is made of basalts. In fact, it's the main rock type of Earth because, I mean, the ocean floor is 70% of the Earth's surface.
0: But it's not just on the ocean floor. About 5% of the continents are also made up of basaltic rock. So if you take basaltic rock on the one hand, which is a base, and acidic water containing dissolved CO2 on the other hand, our carbonic acid, and put them together, they react.
2: So is this like the reaction with the with the baking soda and the vinegar, or is it less explosive?
0: It's definitely less explosive. So what happens? Okay, well we have to get a little nerdy very briefly. But the thing to know is that basaltic rocks contain a lot of different types of metals, or metallic elements. In particular, they have a lot of calcium, magnesium, and iron. And when water containing dissolved carbon dioxide comes into contact with these metals, they react and bond together.
3: These metals, they bind with the carbon in the water and form minerals.
0: These new minerals that are formed between the metals in the basaltic rock and the carbon in the water are called carbonates. So what do the carbonates do once once they're made? Nothing. And that's what we want? That's what we want. They just sit there. So as opposed to what the gases did, they wanted to go up the carbonates, they just chill. Exactly. And so basically what was a gas transforms into a solid mineral or type of rock. And as you might imagine, this is an extremely safe way of storing CO2.
3: The CO2 then is rock steady, as we say, in the minerals, and it doesn't have any tendency to rise back to the surface. And this way, the Earth has stored CO2 for millions of years
2: within the Earth. So is this, is this a natural process that's already happening in nature?
0: Yeah, so it might sound like magic, but it's something that's happening all the time. And in fact, on a very long-term scale, This is how CO2 in the atmosphere gets stored away naturally. It's a process called weathering. And so what happens is that CO2 in the atmosphere dissolves into moisture in the air, making it slightly acidic. When this moisture condenses into clouds and then falls as rain, some of this carbon that was in the rain reacts with rocks on the land, and in the process turns into various solid minerals.
3: Yeah, this is actually over geological time, we're, we're talking about millions of years, the way CO2 is controlled on Earth. It is a weathering of calcium, magnesium, silicate rocks like basalts on the continents. You know, weathering of these rocks consumes CO2.
2: If that's true, then
0: why isn't this process getting rid of all the carbon that we're emitting? Well, the problem is that this weathering happens just too slowly for our purposes. We're talking on the order of millions of years for it to make any meaningful difference in atmospheric CO2 levels. But scientists have known about the phenomenon of weathering for a long time. And the question that some clever people started asking is maybe could you take that same process that happens in little drips over millions of years and speed it up? If so, it would be a permanent and safe way of disposing of huge amounts of CO2. So,
2: again, nature has actually given us the best way to do this. We just
0: want to see if we can accelerate it or do it on a larger scale. Exactly. And by putting much more CO2 into the water than would be found in the typical rain droplets, it would make the water much more acidic. And that would potentially help speed up the reactions. Klaus Lackner, our carbon-capturing scientist from the last few episodes, actually wrote a paper on this idea back in the 90s. So people had theorized about it, but no one had really tried it out in person. But about a decade ago, Siggi, our Icelandic scientist, was approached by a pretty impressive group to see if this idea could be tested out in the real world. The original
3: idea of carpics came from you know, the president of Iceland and Wally Bruker in New York. You know, he's a professor at Columbia University. They were thinking how can we, you know, get this going in Iceland.
0: And why Iceland?
3: Iceland, because Iceland is the largest part of the oceanic ridges that is above sea level. You know, Iceland is more than 90, well, about 90% of basaltic composition, a little bit similar to the ocean floor. And uh, since I'm based in Iceland, you know, we have a very good opportunity to study this.
0: So the idea? Dissolve the CO2 in water. Inject that water into basaltic rock.
3: And then they can form stable minerals.
0: So from this idea, Carpfix was born, and at first he started by testing the concept just in the lab at the University of Iceland. And was it working? Yeah, in the lab it was looking great. It looked like speeding up the process might actually work. So, for instance, one of the first PhD students they hired did her thesis modeling the reactions.
3: Her PhD thesis was all about to form a computer model that could actually predict how this would happen. And there she was predicting with her model that this would take of the order
2: of five to ten years.
0: That is for the the CO2 to turn into rock with this new method.
2: And compared with millions of years, that's that's
0: pretty fast. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So it looked promising. But as Siggy points out, there are so many unknown variables and potential problems that success in the lab was no guarantee that this idea would actually work out in the real world.
3: You can predict things, you can model them, there's nothing like doing. So you have to do it. You have to inject.
0: So a few years ago, in 2014, with the cooperation of Reykjavik Energy, Siggy and the team decided it was time to try out the experiment in real life to see if they could really turn carbon dioxide into new solid minerals, and do it not with a tiny amount in the lab, but with thousands of tons out in the field. So the site they picked for it to do the experiment was at Iceland's biggest geothermal power plant, Hedlishe, which is about 30 kilometers or so outside of Reykjavik. The plant is run by Reykjavik Energy. And you got to go to this place? Yeah, so I got the chance to go out there but first, at Reykjavik Energy's headquarters at the edge of town, I met with Berger Sigperson Berger? Yes. Hi. Sorry, I, uh, I took a round turn. Yeah, don't worry.
1: We'll just go to the plants, have a look, and go through the whole process. Sounds good.
0: As we so leave we, Reykjavik uh, and head more okay. into the countryside, the scenery around us starts to resemble something that you'd see on the surface of the moon. The landscape is hilly and barren. There's basically no trees, and not even really any plants around. But what you do see is black rock, and lots of it. It's the basalt, which is why Iceland is so perfect for this experiment. And all that basalt is the result of magma that flowed in stages 700 700 years ago. And
1: it came from the mountains here. But this is what happens in 700 years in Iceland. Nothing too much.
0: So the area we're in right now is super geologically active. It's actually where the tectonic plates between Europe and North America are slowly moving apart. So basically, we're driving from like one side of uh, the ocean plate to the other right now.
1: Yeah, we are entering Europe. Let's say. I mean, there are earthquakes, and it's you know there are continuous tectonic movements. So it's very active. Everything here is alive.
0: And that aliveness is why Iceland is perfect for geothermal power. With all of the volcanic activity happening in the area, the temperatures a few hundred meters below the earth can easily reach into hundreds of degrees Celsius. Those high temperatures turn the groundwater into hot steam. And the geothermal power plant we're heading to takes advantage of the huge amount of energy contained in this hot steam to turn turbines and generate electricity. After the shortest drive, we roll up to the plant and it looks almost like some sort of space colony. The power plant is dominated by one gigantic building with smaller industrial buildings dotted around. It's situated next to a mountain range. And one of the first things you notice are these six gigantic metal pipes that are zigzagging down the mountain towards the plant. What they're carrying is the hot steam, which has been heated by the volcanically active ground below and which powers the plant. Production hall. Soon we were standing outside of the main production hall where the electricity is generated and you could actually feel the power of the steam below us.
1: Feel it. Do you feel the vibration? Yeah. It's a steam. Yeah? Right below us. You have 45 megawatts of steam between your
0: legs. Oh, wow. So it's going from those big pipes over here under. It
1: comes from this here.
0: Then we entered into the hall, where you hear the roaring hum of the generators and giant turbines. They have six main massive units, which each produce an impressive amount of power. And so h- how much electricity does this, uh, this one create? 45 megawatts each turbine. Which is enough for about how many houses, you know?
1: Ooh, plenty. Uh, I don't remember.
0: But enough for a small, like a small town or like a few thousand people or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah.
1: Plenty. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Much more than a few thousands.
0: Now, geothermal energy is a very clean energy source. It's renewable and clean, and you don't need to burn any fuels to do it. But it's not without any emissions because it turns out that while 99.5% of the steam that they're using in those pipes to turn the generators is just pure water, there's also a bit of other gases mixed in with the steam gases which are just naturally underground with the magma. The biggest part of this gas is carbon dioxide, but there's also quite a bit of hydrogen sulfide, or H2S, which is that chemical that smells like rotten eggs, which you might have noticed if you've ever been to a natural thermal pool or geyser. And there's a few other trace gases mixed in as well.
1: So for each turbine, the steam comes through this pipe here and goes into the turbine itself. From there,
0: and here's where we get to the emissions. In the power plant, after the steam mixture turns the turbines and generates power, the steam is cooled and condenses back into water.
2: Okay, then once they get the water, what do they do with the remaining gases?
0: Well, before they would just release it all to the air, including this carbon dioxide. And, you know, it's a tiny amount of carbon dioxide compared to what a coal plant would produce. But it's still tons and tons of carbon dioxide nonetheless, upwards of 20,000 tons a year. And this is the CO2 that a few years ago, CarbFix decided to experiment with to see if they could use the basaltic rock that's all around the plant to turn this waste CO2 into solid minerals in the ground instead of just releasing it to the atmosphere.
2: And so what was their strategy? What did they do?
0: Well, so the first thing that they needed when they started this experiment was a way to separate the CO2 and the H2S gases from the other gases that they are left with after the steam goes through the plant. The other gases don't dissolve in water, and if they didn't get rid of them, it would end up creating problems with the injection. So what they did is they built a special device to separate out the gases, an absorption tower, which Berger took me to see.
1: And you can see this building there in front of us, uh, the small building there, Mm -hmm. it's an adsorption tower where we scrub out H2S and CO2 from the gas stream, dissolve it in water.
0: The structure kind of looks a bit like a, a cell phone tower, but it's really just a mixing chamber. It's basically like a shower.
2: With water coming out of it?
0: Yeah, or inside of it at least. So what they do is they pump the leftover gas mixture from the plant that contains the CO2 and the other gases into the side of this chamber. And at the top of the tower, water rains down like in a shower. The CO2, since it dissolves in water, naturally gets absorbed. And the other gases, which aren't able to dissolve in water, simply float up to the top where they get vented off.
1: So the gas comes in, wants to go up, but then we have water coming down, and the gas dissolves in the water.
0: So, by the time the water gets to the bottom of the chamber, it's become our fizzy water containing CO2, or our, for those of us well versed in chemistry, as you said, our carbonic, carbonic acid. Carbonic acid, yeah.
1: This water is then saturated with gas, and we then take this water, compress it, and send it to the reinjection well that we are visiting now.
2: When it's ready to be injected, that means. It's perfectly poised to release CO2 into rock form.
0: Basically. So it's ready in that we've successfully dissolved the carbon dioxide into water.
2: And now it can unload that at a future point. Hopefully, yes. Yeah.
1: This is it. Uh, I have to ask you to put on one of these. Okay. And one of those. You can adjust
0: it. What are you putting on there? Uh, safety equipment, a little vest and a, a hard hat. Why, what, what could happen to you? I think very little, but <laughs> better safe than sorry. So after we had put on the safety equipment, we stepped into a small building that houses the injection well. It's this really strange metal igloo looking thing. So we're in kind of like an igloo yeah. shaped uh, structure. So that's just to protect it?
1: Yeah, it's just to protect all the equipment and make it nicer to work with and so on. For sampling and so on, it's much nicer to sample inside an igloo than in a storm. (laughs) Yeah, that
0: makes it look pretty futuristic too.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah, it's a nice design.
0: Through a hole in the side of the igloo comes in a metal pipe, which is carrying the water that's been filled with carbon dioxide. And that hum you hear is the sound of the water traveling through the pipes.
1: This contains the water from the power plant, which has been saturated with gas.
0: In this pipe, there's a small clear window so they can look at the water and monitor what's going on. The main thing they're looking for is to make sure that all of the CO2 has actually been dissolved. So we can check here if there
1: are any bubbles. If there are bubbles, we know there is something wrong with the process.
0: But when we look at it, because the CO2 gas has been successfully dissolved, You just see clear water, which you can't even really tell is there.
1: But if you would release the pressure, then the gas would boil and you would start to see bubbles.
0: So this water is under pressure right now then?
1: Yeah, this is at almost 9 bar.
2: Why would they want to have pressure?
0: Well, they want the water to be under pressure because it allows them to fit in much more CO2 into the same amount of water, which not only means that they can get away with using much less water for the process, it also makes the water more acidic and in that way helps speed up the reaction. After passing through the clear window, the water enters into the wellhead and then goes down in a steel pipe deep into the bedrock below. The water goes deeper than the Eiffel Tower is tall, deeper than the Empire State Building, down to 650 meters into the crust.
2: And what's the significance of that particular depth?
0: Well, it has to go deep enough to make sure that there's enough pressure on the water so that the CO2 gas doesn't just dissolve back out.
1: Yeah, it's to prevent boiling, the gas boiling out of the water.
0: Right, so if it was just at, at surface level, then the carbon dioxide would just boil out.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And so if all of this is happening so deep underground, how do they know if it's
0: working? Well, they have monitoring wells uh, dotted around the area where they're able to take samples of the water from deep down below and check its chemical composition to see what's going on. So they started injecting CO2 at a large scale, as I mentioned, in 2014. And then it became a waiting game to see what would happen. Would they actually be able to turn all of this gaseous CO2 into solid rock? Now, the closest monitoring well to where they were injecting the CO2 was about 100 meters away.
3: So we were continuously injecting water and gas into our injection well, and then the excitement was to then wait for it to arrive in our monitoring well.
1: It was exciting times, let's say. We did huge organization on, okay, when are we going to catch the first plume of the injected CO2?
0: Now, there's two main ways that water can flow underground. There's easy, fast routes, and then there's hard, slow routes. The easy one means there's basically like a big crack, a direct route between two points. Water on this path is like a car on the highway. It just goes straight and without obstacles. And water on the other path is like going through country lanes. Yes, small, traffic-filled English towns. So it's a small percentage of the water that they had pumped in, but some of it found an easy route and arrived in the closest monitoring well after just a few days.
3: You know, it was quite exciting when we saw the first arrival
0: of the tracers. Each day, one of Siggy's PhD students would drive up to the plant and take a sample.
3: And I mean, you know, the, the student at the time, he would go up there. And of course, we always pick the winter, you know, what is tough to do it, he would go up there in a snowstorm take a sample from the monitoring well and then we would have a number
0: the main number, Siggy and the researchers were looking at in their samples was the water's ph which is a measure of how acidic something is basically the lower the ph number the more acidic something is anything below seven is acidic anything above seven is basic and seven is exactly neutral mm. now the co2 had made the water they injected very acidic
3: the ph of the CO2 injected water was about 3.9, you know, very acid. And groundwater in basaltic terrain has a very high pH, like pH 9 and between 9 and 10. It's basic, actually, it's very basic water.
0: So, one quick way they could tell how much carbon dioxide was in the water they were sampling was by how much lower the pH was than normal basaltic groundwater. And when that first plume of injected water arrived, the pH started dropping quickly, which means the acidic CO2 was arriving.
3: And we could see every day the pH was dropping from nine, then it went to, you know, 8.9, and then 8.5, and then it went down to seven, and then we started to get
2: scared.
0: Well, what were they scared of? Well, in order for this reaction to work and for the minerals to form, the acidic CO2 water they injected first has to be neutralized by the basalt. The pH has to be brought up.
3: So the the minerals will not precipitate unless you neutralize the water.
0: So if the pH of the water dropped too low and stayed that way, it would mean that for some reason the reaction wasn't happening, that something was interfering with it. So the pH being low and staying low was not a good sign
3: where it was continuously going down, then we were worried. We thought, this is going to be complete failure. We're just going to pull out water and it's going to be the same as in the injection water.
0: But remember, this was just a small amount of the CO2-saturated water that they had injected. The much bigger portion was still slowly on its way, squeezing its way through tiny pore spaces and fissures.
3: But then later on, you know, 150 days later came the main plume of the injected water that went through more tortuous part where you had much more reactions. And then you did hardly see any change in the pH, just a little bit, you know, from nine down to about 8.9.
0: So they were taking water samples week after week and basically getting the same numbers back, the same results, time after time.
3: Seeing, oh, it's just the same boring pH, same again and again. And then it slowly dawns on you that, well, if it's all mineralized, we shouldn't see anything.
0: I'm confused. Uh, Does no change mean success? In this case, yes. Because the reason the pH wasn't dropping was because the CO2 that made the water acidic and have a low pH number simply wasn't there anymore.
3: Because it was all taken care of when it came to the monitoring well the mineralization had all occurred.
0: Now they had put special chemical compounds into the water with the CO2 called tracers just to mark the water. And so the traces were there. So they knew that this was indeed the water that they had injected with the CO2.
3: But we're not seeing any increase in the carbon because it's been mineralized by the reactions in the rocks.
0: And as Berger puts it, this is when they knew that they had been successful.
3: It was always more and more
1: interesting to see that we were mineralizing and the CO2
3: just wasn't arriving. And then 400 days later, you know, the plume had gone through and it was all mineralized. More than 95% of what was injected was mineralized in less than two years.
2: Wow, so we went from five years now to two years. So this is really quite successful.
0: Yeah, and I I think just how well it worked caught even them by surprise, which Siggy admitted to in kind of a coy science way. But it's safe to say that this exceeded all expectations.
3: Yeah, I can say that. You know, I think we can say that.
0: And they've even held the evidence in their hand. So they've drilled out cylindrical rock samples from the bedrock. And all around the core of black basaltic rock they dug up, you could see these tiny, small, little chalky crystals that have filled up the pore in the rock, which is the CO2 that's been mineralized. Hmm. So, so what do you think about all this? Uh, are you excited by it after hearing about it? It sounds
2: promising. Um, my gut response is it still feels like a long time. I mean, we're talking about two years. I know in geological time, it's a blink of an eye. Um, but I'm intrigued to see how that would sort of intermingle with our industrial processes
0: where we're, where we're pumping out so much CO2 all the time. Right. But the thing is, like, during this uh, the two years, that's just like from the beginning of the injection to the end of the injection, right? So that you can continually be pumping down mm. new water all the time, right? So it's not like you need to do one batch and then wait for two years.
2: That's true. Okay.
0: Yeah. So when I heard about this and the success that they were having, I thought it was really exciting. And the cool thing is that this is still an ongoing thing. They've been running this injection of CO2-filled water at the power plant since 2014.
3: The exciting thing is the again, she puts it into practice. It is a big part of their operation now, and it works. That's the beauty of it.
0: So it's gone beyond the experimental stage into actual practice at least in this one small way a majority of the carbon dioxide the plant produces is now safely stored underground this way it's what we were talking about in the first
2: episode where the producers are the ones responsible for the capturing and they're actually doing it at the same place
0: yeah and in Reykjavik Energy's case they're actually doing this on a voluntary basis so they're spending money on this basically out of the goodness of their hearts so they don't need to do this um is that sustainable at a World-level economic scale? Probably not. Probably not. But uh, God bless Iceland. Yes, and Reykjavik energy. We have received no money from Reykjavik energy to produce this <laughs> content. And
2: did you did you get a sense of the scale? Like how much CO2 is actually being disposed of this way?
0: Well, it works out to about 16,000 tons of CO2 a year. That sounds big. Yeah, but it's not exactly world-saving either, which is um, something I asked Berger about. 16,000 tons sounds like a lot, but I guess that's not actually much compared to what a, a normal power plant, like a coal plant or a natural gas plant, would produce.
1: No, it's a very small amount. But we believe this can easily be scaled up from 16,000 to much higher values
3: than this.
0: And here's Siggy again.
3: It's not a gigantic experiment, but it's, a, it's an experiment that's been running now, you know, for more than two years and has been without any technical problems.
0: I mean, it's great if it does work at the 16,000 ton level. But as we've learned to really make a difference, we need to be eventually storing billions of tons of CO2.
2: So how, how much more CO2 can be stored this way? Are we talking about you know, double, triple or orders of
0: magnitude more? Well, that's a, a hard question to answer, but it's definitely orders of magnitude. What order of magnitude, though, is hard to say. But the the question that I had
2: is that if this works well, then surely all the spaces in between the rocks are going to be turned into rock themselves, and there'll be no more space for the water to go through.
0: Yeah, well, that was one of the main things I was thinking about, too. But when I asked Berger about it, he seemed optimistic. I mean, just take this one site. So will it run out of space down there at a certain point? Eventually, but
1: we have plenty of space. And you can always drill a new well when this well runs out. But that won't happen in the near future.
0: So, at least in the short term, because of how this process works, space isn't a problem. And why not? Like, did your reporting illuminate why? Yeah, because it turns out that the acidic water that they inject at first actually eats away at the basaltic rock near the injection site and creates new pore space. And it's not until further away once the acidic water has been neutralized by the basaltic water, that the carbon precipitates out, turns into rock and starts blocking things up.
2: So it first dissolves and then deposits further away. And that means where it dissolved, it creates space for the process to continue. Exactly.
3: This injection well has actually the best injectivity of all the injection wells that Reykjavik energy is operating. So in the beginning, this is all about dissolving and creating some pore space, and eventually we will clock up all the flow paths you know far away, but then this is actually a very active continental drift site. The rocks are being continuously fractured and that creates a new flow path for your water.
0: So this specific site at the power plant could handle way more CO2. Exactly how much more is hard to say, but definitely significantly larger amounts than they're handling now. But again, to really help with climate change, we'll need to be storing billions of tons. And just to store 1 billion tons of CO2 would mean an operation 62,000 times bigger than what they're currently doing at a plant. Jeez, that's a lot. That's a lot. But the good news is that this process could be repeated in sites around the world. Anywhere you have water, a source of CO2 to bury, and basaltic rock.
2: So all these sites where there's basaltic rock, is there enough of that? To to get to the scale we need.
0: Well, I asked Siggy about that myself. Is there enough space in the actual rock to put this to scale, where we would be dealing with like millions of tons a year?
3: Oh, oh yeah, the, I had the PhD student doing the storage
0: capacity. There is enough. So I went right to the source.
3: So my
1: name is Sandra Snæbjörsdóttir, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Iceland. Young and fresh basaltic rocks are quite porous usually. So the amount that we theoretically could store, if we could you know, easily access all this basalt, is huge. It's like we could easily store all the carbon from fossil fuels on Earth.
2: That's a big statement. All the fossil fuels on Earth.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what we need. Yes. And the amount of basalt we have is something that like Klaus Lackner from the last episode also pointed out. There's plenty of rock which can do this far more than there's coal, oil, or gas, so we we can't
4: run out of that. And you could bind all the CO2 you ever made to it.
3: But
1: practically, (laughs) it will probably look quite different.
0: You see, there is a catch. Uh, A
1: lot of this basalt is offshore, and therefore it will be challenging to access.
0: There is basaltic rock on land, like here in Iceland, but the vast majority of the rock is on the ocean floor which is not exactly easy to get to. And the other catch is, is that where the saltic rock is, you know, in the ocean, you know, you don't necessarily have a a source of CO2 nearby.
2: Iceland sounds like a special place. (laughs) It is a very special place. If you want to do exactly just this thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, where do you get the CO2 from if your storage site is in the middle of the ocean, where we don't exactly have power plants or factories producing the CO2 that we're trying to keep from entering the atmosphere?
2: So the only way to bridge that would be through transport, which would take energy and which would eventually take you to non-negative emissions, you know, because there you're consuming energy to to get rid of it. You've
0: learned uh, very well. Yeah. I mean, this is something that Siggy talked about as well.
3: You know, it doesn't make sense to put the compressed clean CO2 that is captured in Hamburg, Germany and sail it all the way to Iceland, you know, on the way burning some fuel to sail over there, and then store it there.
0: As Klaus Lackner himself said in the last episode, you always want to be as close as possible from where you capture the carbon dioxide to a place where you can store it. Which would all be a reason to not have this kind of plant in the ocean. Yes, but... Maybe, just maybe, you could combine Klaus's direct air capture machine with the Icelandic method.
2: How, how, would they, how would they
0: marry the two? Well, since it doesn't seem practical to transport the CO2 over huge distances, maybe you could place direct air capture machines on platforms in the ocean, or really anywhere with basaltic rock, so that you would capture the CO2 right near the places where you're able to store it. So I was curious if Siggy thought that the carb fix method might be able to work with what Klaus is doing. And he was enthusiastic.
3: Oh yeah, Klaus has the the ultimate solution, just to take the CO2 straight out of the air. Because the beauty of it, if we can use Klaus Lachner's method, then of course the obvious thing is to do this in basaltic rocks. If we take it directly from air, we could put this in remote basaltic areas you know, of the world, but then we don't need to concentrate the CO2 stream. We could just take it out to the air, and that is that is actually a beautiful solution if it works. Yet it has to be proved to work on a big scale.
0: And it's an idea that Klaus is really excited by as well. In Iceland, I could imagine that right
4: at the shore, you have you are pumping ocean water into wells, and you add the CO2 to it and. That water eventually, somewhere in
0: the ocean, comes back out. But by the time it comes out, it has no CO2 anymore. Another advantage of doing it near the ocean is that there would be enough water to make sure that we could actually do this at a, at a billion-ton scale. Because they do need an awful lot of water in order to be able to store CO2 in this way.
3: You know, for every ton of gas mixture we use, we need about at least 25 tons of water. And where do you get that? Certainly not in the middle of India,
2: you know,
0: where water is very scarce and very, very valuable.
2: So could they just take normal seawater?
0: Yeah, so Siggy thinks that they could use seawater for this. Uh, and in fact, he thinks it's probably necessary.
3: To do this big scale, we have to do it with seawater because I mean, then there's endless supply of water. We've done experiments in the lab, which suggest that this is, is actually quite feasible. and might even be better with seawater because seawater already contains some of the minerals like calcium and magnesium that is needed for this.
0: So doing this in the ocean would be two birds with one stone, plenty of basalt and plenty of water.
2: And that, that works nicely because with all the extra
0: CO2 that's in our atmosphere, that's being absorbed into the oceans already, right? Yeah, and that's doing damage. Um, It's called ocean acidification, and it's causing a whole bunch of problems. Coral reefs to die. Exactly, Um, and uh, marine life can't build uh, their shells as easily, so that's a really terrible thing. But in this case, because the water would be neutralized by the basaltic rock, it wouldn't be acidic, so it wouldn't be causing any more problems. So bringing these two together
2: really does seem cool. It really, because we have so much water and so much basalt. And if we can use Klaus's method of getting it out of the air, then this really could be revolutionary.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so if these two methods could be combined, then we would really have a powerful way to permanently and safely store CO2, take it out of the air and create a negative emission. And having a source of CO2 is really the key thing to making the Icelandic part work, that along with water. So I mean, to me, this carbfix method seems like a super promising solution for storing the world's excess CO2. But as Siggy points out, it will just be one part of a larger spate of solutions.
3: I mean, this is no silver bullet. This is not one solution. This is one of many.
0: But even if it is just one solution among many, it does have a huge potential, especially when paired alongside air capture technologies like Klaus's, And as far as storing carbon dioxide goes, it's also really affordable.
3: We know we can capture and store, you know, CO2 by the CarbFix method with 25 euros per tonne. We know we can do it, which is very
2: exciting. 25 euros as dinner and a movie.
0: Yeah, so it's actually super affordable. But here's the crazy thing, because like Klaus, CarbFix is also dealing with problems of money. To run and operate these experiments, CarbFix has cobbled together funding from government and European Union grants, as well as getting support from Reykjavik Energy. But assembling the cash to keep their efforts going has not been easy.
3: We probably had to spend more than half our time raising money and managing money, which is actually ridiculous.
0: And in the long term, if this storage technique is going to scale up from pilot projects like this to be a genuine part of solving climate change, there's definitely going to need to be a a more sustainable way of funding it. When I brought up the question with Siggy of who is going to pay to make this happen, he did something very similar to Klaus. He pointed to the failure of policy. I mean, where do you think the money is going to come from for this? This is
3: a very, very sad story because the core of the European environmental policy is the emission trading system or emission trading scheme or whatever you want to call it.
0: The European trading scheme was put in place in 2005 by the EU, and the idea was to create a market-driven price on carbon pollution within Europe. What it did is it created a set number of polluting credits, which companies needed in order to be able to emit CO2. These credits could be bought and sold, and the idea was that their price would go up and down in line with supply and demand.
3: So every company that emits more than 100,000 tons per year was supposed to be a part of this. They have to buy permission on the market to emit to the atmosphere.
0: This trading scheme by putting a price on carbon was supposed to create an incentive for companies to develop technologies and practices to lower their emissions. And initially it held out a lot of promise
3: in the beginning, the price of this was between 20 to 25 euros per ton. And that's something that people thought that we do a pool and create incentive for the industry and the power company to develop methods to capture CO2 and store it safely.
0: Because if the companies involved safely stored the carbon dioxide that they created, then they wouldn't have to pay this extra money. And Actually, in the early days, there were signs that the trading scheme was working. So, for example, SIGI had outside companies that were interested in partnering with CarbFix to help them develop techniques for storing CO2.
3: I remember when the price was highest in 2008, we had oil companies that were very willing to take part in our European application.
0: But then the economic crisis of 2008 happened. Manufacturing in Europe crashed, and the price of carbon dioxide pollution with it. The price for the CO2 credits went as low as 5 euros a ton in 2013, and it basically just have it around that price for the next few years.
3: And then after that, you know, after 2013, when the price went down, we have harder and harder time to get industrial partners because the incentive is not there.
2: Comes down to the money.
0: Yeah. So sadly, it's cheaper for companies to just go ahead and pollute and then buy the credits on the market than to actually find ways of capturing and storing their carbon dioxide emissions.
3: So it's a total failure. It's not creating the incentive for the companies to take care of this. You know, it can be done but as it is today. They just pay their 5 euros per ton and don't do anything.
0: Now, since I interviewed Siggy, the price of carbon on the market has started going up. It's even gone beyond 20 euros a ton. So at least there's some hopeful signs that this might be changing. But even 20 euros a ton is still too little, really, to make a difference in the economics of carbon capture and storage because it's still cheaper to just pollute. So here we are again, you know.
2: Back trying to think about ways to make this incentivized.
0: Yeah. So just like it was with Klaus's direct air capture technology, Policy and finance are, again, the central problem that needs to be overcome. And according to Siggy, if we want technologies like CarbFix to hit the mainstream, then we'll need a significant and stable price on carbon dioxide pollution.
3: Unless we put a price on carbon, I have no great hopes for carbon capture and storage. And if we don't, it's not going to take off big scale. But we have to do it. We have to do it. If we cannot, well, if we're gonna, keep on living, at least in the coastal areas of the Earth.
0: Seems like a small price to pay compared to what, what it will cost us.
3: Exactly, exactly.
0: So, we have these great potential methods. Between what Klaus is doing with working on capturing carbon dioxide, and what Siggy and the entire Carfix team is doing with storing carbon dioxide, there are definitely exciting things going on. And those are just two snippets. There are also many other people working with carbon dioxide and storage that we didn't get to in these past few episodes. You know, the startups, researchers, scientists, engineers, and so on. So in answer though to the question that we set off at the beginning of this journey with, I mean, technically, can we take carbon dioxide out of the air? Yes. Can we store it? Also yes. Can negative emissions grow to become a part of the solution? Almost definitely. But only if we change the rules of the game and do what it takes to make this financially possible and profitable, which is something that Klaus, you know, again, hit home on. So we need to we need to move
4: into deployment. For that you need incentives. It could be regulatory, which say you must not dump your garbage. It could be economic, which says if you pull a ton of CO2 back it's worth the carbon price, which could be $50 a ton or $100 a ton. Uh, if you were to do that, I think things can then accelerate quite fast. And Klaus gives the example of how other technologies developed. It seems to take a decade or two for things that work to get from, here we can do it, to now it's big. Think of cars, right? In early 1900s, they just started. And by 1925, cars had penetrated into the market. Jet planes took from 1950 to 1965. Uh, PCs got in from the mid 80s to now 2000. Everybody had a PC by then. Cell phones. So there are lots of examples where you see that's how long it takes.
2: Okay, so that. So that seems pretty manageable, like it could be reduced to a formula. We need a couple of decades plus the political will and plus the right incentives,
0: and then it could work. yeah, and then it could be a big part of the solution so tony i'm I'm curious how you feel after you know going on this journey that I've taken you on over these these past few episodes
2: okay, so. So when you initially called me in, you were like, okay, I want to tell you a story about climate change. And whenever people hear that beginning to a story, they think you're just going to layer on guilt of why I should be a better person, but I'm not. And this has turned out to be quite an interesting roller coaster. in that there are points where there's hope and then there are points of despair, but there still are avenues where we can do something.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't know about you but I personally came away feeling more hopeful. I mean there's a lot of problems <laughs> that uh, we've talked about within, you know, both Klaus's side of the solution which is capturing carbon dioxide from the air and you know Siggy's side of the solution which is storing it. You know, there's the problems with finance and the the hopelessness of like there's no good policies right now to to support this type of thing but it was for me really heartening to know that people are working on this and that it actually seems from an engineering standpoint totally feasible i mean like i mean with major major challenges uh, ahead to scale this up but at a small scale we can do this and we could definitely do it bigger and maybe eventually hopefully with billions of tons If
2: we want to. If we want to. So we've sort of like had a stern talking to by our doctor saying, if you don't change your behavior, you're going to have a heart attack and die. But if you take these really drastic measures, uh, which will suck for a while, then there's some kind of path. And it's different to the kind of message that we've been hearing, which has been just like reduce, reduce. Uh, This is sort of taking our normal consumption behavior into account and trying to work around that so it's less of a moralistic sermon and more of an economics message of you know if we get the incentives right we could totally make it work
0: yeah exactly and according to klaus getting away from that kind of moralistic blaming approach that we can kind of get stuck into with climate change is key to us actually solving this problem in the end, you have to get the most number of
4: people to actually want this problem solved. The lower the resistance to making it happen, the easier it will be for politicians to answer this. And the more you tie this to other problems, the harder it will be to solve. This didn't need to end up in this polarization, if you simply said, this can be fixed. and it'll cost a little bit of money, but it's not the end of the world. And how you want to live your life is your problem. And how I want to live my life is my problem. Uh, we might have fixed this thing. We could have said this is truly a technical issue which needs a solution. And let's not let's not tie it into a lifestyle questions. So the moment you did this, you had it in the middle of politics. right? And so then one side said this is, is a hoax and the other side says if you don't do it, you are evil, and so then things came to a grinding halt, and <laughs> you know, that—that's where
0: we are. And Tony, I'd be curious to hear just a bit more about where you're at after hearing about these technologies. Are you any more optimistic about whether humanity can actually solve the climate change crisis in front of us? So I'm cautiously hopeful. Good. Mission accomplished for me.
2: Yeah, that's what—that's what you brought me in here for, right? Yeah. Congratulations then.
0: <laughs> you're, you're not just putting me on, you actually do feel a bit more hopeful?
2: Yeah, I feel hopeful and yeah, I think that there are definite uh, handles or tools that we can use to to get further along on this path.
0: You mean for people like you and me?
2: Yeah, so as a journalist, I feel my role would be uh, in helping to spread awareness about this, making sure that it's on the agenda, but there are all sorts of other ways to, to get involved as well. One of them being that I took away from it, for example, is this, is this idea of uh, recycling. Remember, he mentioned recycling is a, is a point where the bottom up approach really got policymakers to change their minds on things. Yeah, And so if we make carbon capture a big part of the agenda and it eventually becomes part of political agendas, that that can change policy behavior and business behavior.
0: Yeah. And Tim Flannery actually made one more point that I I really liked about how, you know, young people could get involved. I mean, not only, but particularly those who happen to have a technical persuasion or technical interest. I mean, there are opportunities there for young people everywhere to really build careers and have great, great contributions
3: to, to changing uh, sustainability as a whole. And I think we we lose. We often think of it as a threat, but it is a huge opportunity. And I, if there's one thing I'd just like to say, it's energise young people, young engineers, bright young people anywhere to think about this as a future and get in there and look at the carbon negative technologies and make a fortune out of it by all means, but get in there and develop these technologies.
2: What I like about that is that uh, it's not about necessarily doing things as an altruistic, you know, endeavor, but you could, you could build a career on this or make money out of, out of this because it, it has real growth potential.
0: Yeah, well, I, we certainly hope that it has growth potential. Um, but yeah, I love it too. You know, it's not only a, a challenge, but an opportunity. Now, all we have to do is save the world, <laughs> Indeed. Well, cheers to that. And, uh, and thanks, Tony. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. the pleasure is all mine. So that's it for this series of episodes looking at negative emissions. Um, But actually, we will be back in two weeks' time for an update episode. You know, we started recording these interviews at first two years ago. And just in the past few months, a few exciting things have happened within this area of direct air capture and storage that you'll definitely want to hear about. So uh, so come back then and we'll take a look at the lay of the land. And uh, and yeah, thanks so much for to everyone for listening. This series of episodes was made possible thanks to funding from Climate Kick. Climate Kick is a European knowledge and innovation community that's working towards a prosperous, inclusive, and carbon-neutral society. Stopping global temperatures from rising more than 2 degrees requires unprecedented changes. It requires new social dynamics, new ways of doing business, and new ways of living. While no one organization can tackle climate change alone, Climate helps catalyze the rapid innovation needed across society by supporting climate-positive entrepreneurship, research and education. It gathers the brightest minds together to help learn about and tackle climate challenges, and also provides mentoring and seed funding to the most promising climate-positive businesses. To learn more about the opportunities and resources that Climate Kick provides, and to see if one might be a fit for you, head to climate-kick.org. That's climate-k-i-c.org. This episode was hosted and produced by myself, Kevin Kaners, and co-hosted by Tony Andrews. Additional production and story editing help came from Charlotta Lomas, Christina Peters, and Tony Andrews. The founding producer of The Elephant is Matthias Gutz, and The Elephant was first supported with funding from the Climate Kick Alumni Association. Special thanks to Dominik Hofstetter, Jakob Busman, and the entire Climate Kick community. So thanks again for listening. We'll be back with our update episode in two weeks' time.